everyone, Kyle here. Welcome back to the second installment of my Communist Book Club. As you gathered from the introductory episode, we are taking a read of Svetlana Alexevich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. Let's start off with some housekeeping. I'm listening to this book on Audible, which seems to have a different table of contents than the physical. My friend Space Unicorn was able to get a book and send me some pictures of it. I'm struggling to understand exactly how the split was done, but for those that are following along possibly in physical book form, we are still within section one, The Consolation of Apocalypse. It seems that we are somewhere after page 15, snatches of street noise and kitchen conversations. I can tell you that I will continue to use chapter titles, which are going to match with the Audible book, seeing as that's kind of all we get. Chapter 8 in Audible, which we will not hit for a couple weeks here, probably another one or two weeks at least, that seems to be the beginning of 10 stories in a red interior, which begins on page 41. The little subheaders you might hear me play audio clips from don't actually make their way into the table of contents in the physical. With that little table, uh, housekeeping, pardon me, out of the way, I hope we can move forward and dive into this episode. I'm very, very excited to continue this, and I plan on putting these episodes out probably each Sunday. Let's have Alexevich queue up Chapter 4. On how we fell in and then out of love with Gorby. The Gorbachev era. Huge crowds of people with radiant faces. Freedom. It was the air we breathed. Everyone hungrily devoured the newspapers. It was a time of great hope. At any moment, we might find ourselves in paradise. Democracy was an exotic beast. Like madmen, we'd run around to every rally. Now we'd learn the truth about Stalin, the gulag. We'd read Anatoly Rubakov's Forbidden Children of the Arbat and other good books. Finally, we'd all become Democrats. How wrong we were. A single message rang out from every loudspeaker. Hurry, hurry, read, listen. Not everyone was prepared for all this. Most people were not anti-Soviet. They only wanted to live well. They really wanted blue jeans, VCRs, and most of all, cars. Nice clothes and good food. Right off the bat, we're presented with a time of great hope. The late 80s, early 90s. As the speaker mentions, people wanted good items. Exotic items. Things that weren't being produced at the relevant quantity within the Soviet Union. I think it goes a step beyond that, too, to say that there is a feeling, or maybe I should say was a feeling, that things from the West being very exotic, very exciting, that that was good. To get their hands on that was something to work towards. That was, in some senses, freedom. Having choices equals freedom. We talked about that a bit last week. On Falling In and Out of Love with Gorby talks about the excitement of learning new pieces of information, things that were previously hidden. They were excited to learn the truth about Stalin and the others. At the same time, they felt that though all of that dark news was coming out, there, would, well, there was hope, palpably, in the streets for something new. People wanted information. People were excited to learn. We hear the speaker talk about returning home with a copy of the Gulag Archipelago, previously banned in the Soviet Union. Her mom was horrified. This likely comes from 
a history of repression and political arrest. Things like this were publicly banned and outcry for it at, at the late 80s, early 90s. People were trying to absorb all of that. But at the same time, it was coming alongside reforms that were signaling the end of the union. I found the quote, people were not anti-Soviet. They wanted to live well. They wanted nice clothes, good food. That is a very interesting thought. People can be persuaded, as we've seen especially lately with what happened here in the United States with the storming of the Capitol, people can be persuaded, for better or worse, by items, signals, and other things that don't fully equate to what they're rioting or protesting for. I don't mean to equate the two people in this one for one. I don't think the causes are at all the same. But the idea of that one can be out there in the streets advocating for change, that that can be completely co-opted or, or lead to something worse uh, is really troublesome. And I think it's just something we all should be very wary of. This to me, this, the Soviet tragedy, as I hear some of these speakers, the Soviet tragedy in the 90s boils down to a want for a better quality of life. But what they got was a capitalist dystopia where people were having to sell prized possessions. I recently got a hold of some Soviet pins that were sent in the mail. I cherish these because these are vintage and I know that someone worked to get them. And what's even more troublesome is I know that they were probably, they were likely sold to help that family sustain themselves. So I, I really, really cherish these. They go for very cheap online. I know people, you know, at this point, collectors trade them for very, 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 very cheap. But the idea behind it, that someone sold this to actually have to feed themselves is distressing when we consider the juxtaposition we're seeing. People out in the streets chanting for a better life only to be delivered something much worse. We're gonna experience a quick switch of character Let's hear what they have to say. Happiness is here, huh? Sure, there's salami and bananas. We're rolling around in shit and eating foreign food. Instead of a motherland, we live in a huge supermarket. If this is freedom, I don't need it. To hell with it. The people are on their knees. We're a nation of slaves. Slaves! Under communism, in the words of Lenin, the cook ran the state. Workers, dairymaids, and weavers were in charge. Now our parliament is lousy with criminals. Dollar-rich millionaires. They should all be in prison, not parliament. They really duped us with their perestroika. I was born in the USSR, and I liked it there. My father was a communist. He taught me how to read with Pravda. Every holiday, we'd go to the parades with tears in our eyes. I was a young pioneer. I wore the red kerchief around my neck. Then Gorbachev came, and I never got the chance to join the Komsomol, which I'm still sad about. I'm a Savok, huh? And my parents are Savoks, and my grandparents too. My grandfather, the Savok, died defending Moscow in 41. My Savok grandmother fought with the partisans. The liberals are working off their piece of the pie. They want us to think of our history as a black hole. I hate them all. Gorbachev, Shevardnadze, Yakovlev. Don't capitalize their names. That's how much I hate them all. I don't want to live in America. I want to live in the USSR. For a second, when I was reading off of my notes before actually playing that clip, I listened to those live with you as I'm recording this. 
I thought I was exaggerating when I was emphasizing the the bad. At least it felt like it. Reading it off of notes, it's very different. When you hear someone speak like that, there are a bunch of takeaways. Attending parades with tears in my eyes goes to show that people really truly had emotion for this. I, I've got to throw something in, a personal anecdote again, that in the U.S., we're very okay with that. That that attending parades with tears in your eyes, that's encouraged. But at the exact same time, remember, quote, the USSR is an evil empire, end quote. We have this sort of thing where very easily, contextually in the United States, people would hear that and they could throw that against communism, saying, wow, look at how brainwashed they were. Yet at the same time, I mean, we we encourage that same behavior on a daily basis. I, I feel the need to call out those hypocrisies when we see them. And also to that point, uh, the terms of liberal and earlier mentioned, I believe it was Democrat, those are not one for one to U.S. terms. I just want to remind folks because I know that us in the United States tend to project our terms throughout even history where our term Democrat has even changed from being something that was more right wing around pre-Civil War times to being now what's considered more left wing in the United States Democratic uh, system without going too far down that rabbit hole i just want to draw the distinction make sure you recognize this would have been the communist party that this man was a part of so when speaking about liberals and such that would be those outside those that were looking to change and reform the union when we talk about consumerism this guy right on the nose with it when he said that the nation i feel like a nation of slaves in a massive grocery store not wanting to become the u.s but wanting to stay the ussr thinks that the politicians should be arrested because no longer are they dairy maids and people that actually are workers, but they've become politicians. I don't know if there's a great way immediately around that, but I'll say we definitely face that same problem where many politicians are born and raised politicians. It's seemingly a very nepotism sort of system. I think in our current state, both Russia and the U.S., have that problem being that um, that money is at play. There's a lot of fine schooling and education that is gate-kept and elitist, prevents people from even getting the chance. All that being said, we do hear this speaker having some sort of xenophobia towards outsiders, towards Western culture. I liked another takeaway that, yes, we stood in line for potatoes, but it was our motherland. That's another thing that gets thrown at the Soviet Union a lot is uh, bread lines or food lines. Well, the U.S. has had a huge bout of that and is still experiencing that right now as we speak, uh, January 16th, 2021. So let's not throw stones. Instead, let's hear what our next speaker has to say. We would meet and reinforce one another's delusions that soon we would find ourselves in a completely different country and that this was what we were fighting for. I was very surprised when I learned that one of my classmates was moving to Israel. Aren't you sorry to leave at a time like this? Things are just starting to get good. The more they shouted and wrote, freedom, freedom, the faster not only the cheese and salami, but also the salt and sugar disappeared from the shelves. Stores stood empty. It was very scary. You could only buy things with ration cards, as though we were at war. 
Grandma was the one who saved us. She'd spend her days running around the city making sure we got our ration cards worth. Our whole balcony was covered in detergent. The bedroom was full of sacks of sugar and grain. When they distributed vouchers for socks, my father broke down in tears. This is the end of the USSR. He felt it coming. My father worked in the construction bureau of a munitions factory. He'd worked on missiles. He was crazy about his job. He had two graduate degrees. Then suddenly, instead of missiles, the factory started putting out washing machines and vacuum cleaners. Papa was laid off. He and my mother had been fervent participants in perestroika. They painted posters, distributed flyers, and here's where it got them. They were lost. They couldn't believe that this was what freedom looked like. Harsh reality there. Our speaker talks about her family, how much her parents believed in change, in freedom, in flow of information, of reform, how much they believed in Gorbachev's ideas, and how much it ended up betraying them. The speaker herself is someone they claims to have worked in academia. People were returning to Russia, she says. People were excited for that change. It was a time of happiness in the air, but yet a naive time. She said things are just starting to get good when her friend was ready to leave for Israel. The faster we shouted freedom, the faster things left the shelves. That's scary. That's very scary. That to me, that one, that quote speaks to the idea that as much as we want freedom and we do want to change our systems, we have to understand the systems of government do provide us some amount of stability. So in this case, the more the boat was rocked, the more things started to crumble, the more you could see the chips in the system. She thanks her grandmother for running around the city and making sure they got their rations card worth. She talks about the distributed vouchers for socks, which caused her father to break down in tears. I almost cried at that part myself. Instead of working on missiles, the father got moved to a different factory, working on washing machines, and only to get laid off as he was an advocate for perestroika. Another interesting takeaway... They say they should have asked for a Nuremberg trial for the CPSU, the Communist Party. Should have gotten what they came for. They left the streets too early. That speaks to a sellout feeling again. Being out there advocating for change, having change happen, but having that change be completely out of your control and not being able to help it to, for the better. A lot of people thought that they were building a different kind of socialism as well, something that would be more progressive. Well, this speaker says Marx was wrong. Socialism was constructing capitalism. On how we fell in and out of love with Gorby is a chapter that does introduce you to this sting, the sting of folks who felt betrayed or let down. I mentioned in last week's episode where people were more aggressive towards socialism and communism. I, I mentioned that we would definitely have tear-jerking moments coming. But now, let's move on. Let's talk about actual tanks and the change that happens when a government flips. 
on falling in love with tanks under your windows. I was so in love, I couldn't think about anything else. It was my entire universe. Then one morning, my mother wakes me up. There are tanks outside. I think there's been an uprising. I'm still asleep, I tell her, Mama, they're just doing training exercises. But oh no, there really were tanks directly outside our windows. I'd never seen tanks that up close before. On TV, they were playing Swan Lake. My mother's friend ran over. She was very anxious that she hadn't paid her party dues in several months. She said that at the school where she worked, she had stashed a bust of Lenin in the storeroom. What should she do with it now? The lines were drawn immediately. You couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that. On the radio, they declared a state of emergency. My mother's friend shuddered at every word. My God, my God. My father spat at the television. Wow, even closer to home. As we see troops deployed all over the United States at our Capitol buildings, we're seeing just short of tanks at this point. A little bit of background on the Swan Lake comment. The government controlled the media station, so at a time when there was political uprisings or other things that shouldn't have gotten out, it was customary to black out. And, well, just switch to something that's not news. And in this case, they talk about Swan Lake being played on repeat during the Soviet coups and stuff leading up to the fall of the Union. We're hearing people that are panicking about the simple things in life that mean a lot to them. There's a woman who's worried that she didn't pay her dues. Relevant. And I think we get some more context on this later if memory serves. But I want to say people were worried about paying these party dues because they wanted to be considered a member. They wanted to have these, these um, well, privileges or, or retain statuses in the future. Thinking that I just need to get this done before the system takes a crap, and then maybe on the flip side, I will be able to do better with it. A woman takes pins home from the Consumal. We've got a woman stashing a bust of Lenin. Now, as you're reading through, you'll see the speaker tell a story about going on the metro. People were terrified, expecting tragedy. Or maybe terrified isn't the fair word, but there is a malaise when you expect something to go wrong. It is a fear. It's a deep down fear. Tanks were everywhere. Unfed soldiers, he says. There were actually people taking food to the soldiers because the tanks moved into Moscow were not fully prepped and ready for this. These were young soldiers being moved in. Grandmothers had taken to feeding the tank operators. I took away a comment or an idea here. It says, I was defending socialism. Some other kind. Not the Soviet kind. The speaker thinks they're standing up for something different. Building on our last commentary, this speaker wants something new, something reformed, something better, something with more flexibility. Back to the blue jean comment. They want some more freedoms, want some more products, want to keep up with the world outside of the Iron Curtain. Interesting that it takes me until I'm sitting down and recording this to know what the summary of the episode will be. How could this one be anything else but that of revolution, hopes, aspirations, dreams, and making sure you follow through with them? Don't leave before your Nuremberg trial has happened. Don't go home after 
the change has happened. Make sure to guide the future. You can't be hands-off. And to some extent, we need to know what our future, what future we want to bring into reality. The early parts of this book and throughout, we'll talk about the idea of an unformed freedom. I've heard people say that they were out there on the barricades. They wanted this change. But what happened afterwards was the opposite of what they want or what they wanted. They wanted a better future and they were betrayed. When we end this week's chapter, we're going to end it with a question. I love that Svetlana Alexevich has some of these throughout. This one asks about the pooch, about the coup. When hardline communists tried to take control of the government to move away from the liberalizing ideas that ultimately led to the unraveling. Question. What would have happened if the Putschists had won? Answers. They would have saved a great country from ruin. Look at China, where the communists are still in power. China has developed into the second largest economy in the world. Gorbachev and Yeltsin would have been put on trial for betraying the motherland. They would have drowned the country in blood and filled the camps to capacity. They wouldn't have betrayed socialism. We wouldn't have been split into rich and poor. There wouldn't have been a war in Chechnya. No one would have ever dared to say that the Americans defeated Hitler. I stood in front of the White House myself. I feel like I was cheated. What would have happened if they'd pulled off the pooch? Well, when you think about it, they did. They may have taken down the Iron Felix, but the Lubyanka is right where it always was. We're building capitalism under the leadership of the KGB. My life wouldn't have been any different. I leave it open to you all to give me your interpretations and thoughts. I'd love to hear your opinions on what might have happened. Some extra context, the Lubyanka is the current home of the FSB, what was the KGB, and previously the NKVD, a.k.a. the secret police apparatus. So when they say that the Lubyanka is still functioning, they mean that, um, well, I, I almost want to say para, para-legal activity is going on, but it is legal enforcement of, well, you know, you've heard your stories of your KGB stuff. I hope this book is speaking to those out there listening. I hope you're enjoying learning from the people that experience these moments. We'll continue to see that there is good and there is bad. My thoughts as I persist through as a decade-long communist is it's easy to say communism doesn't work. But as we know, the Soviet Union was only attempting at building communism. A lot of the things they did were reactionary to make things work to get people housing, to get people jobs, to get people fed. Not the idealist form we might want to bring into the modern age, but it is something we need to look at. I think it's helpful to see the juxtaposition between our current lives and the situations that they were facing at the time. As I said, this book brings out some real emotions in me, and, and uh, I would say embrace them if you're feeling them too. Take these stories to heart. This is history here. These are people's voices. I, I wish there were more books like this. I, I wish... As a Westerner, I could know more about the lives of, of people that lived through the Soviet Union. And I fear with time moving on, many people passing away, some of these stories are going to be quickly, very, very quickly lost. 
huge shout out to this book. If you have not already bought yourself a copy, please check out some of the links below. They'll help me out a ton. If you buy it through our Amazon link, that is amazing. We get a kickback. If you're not already an Audible member, consider signing up through that link as they give me a direct kickback from that. Also, consider supporting your local bookstores. This one might be hard to come by unless you have a really thick historical section there. If you guys want to follow over on Twitter, I have created an account for this. Please feel free to tweet at it. It is at Kyle's Communist. And then I'm over on Twitter at Kyle Paranormal. I would love to chat with you. If you're someone that has stories to share from family, friends, or others, get in touch. I would love to share that and love to highlight those in the future. This week, we got through on how we fell in and out of love with Gorby and on falling in love with tanks outside your window. Next week, how stuff became as much as words and ideas and on how we grew up with victims and executioners. Thanks for listening.